Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Well, an early Merry Christmas to you. We'll be saying that again on Christmas Eve. Uh, Great to have you guys here with us this morning. And what we're going to do on this last Sunday before Christmas is we're going to uh, finish off the, the series we began some four weeks ago, and, and what we've been thinking about is the coming of Jesus, which is what Christmas is all about, as Chad just reminded us this morning. Um, but we've been doing that by looking at stories within the bigger story. And the first week, we looked at a story of courage, exemplified in the life of uh, Joseph, The next week, we looked at uh, a story of faith, uh, exemplified in the life of of Mary. And then last week, we looked at a story of hope uh, that we see uh, in the uh, characters that we refer to as the Magi or the wise men. What I want to do this morning, though, is not look at the story within the story, but look at the story, the big story, okay, which is about really... Uh, God's love. It's a story of love. That's what's at the heart of this Christmas season. Chad uh, and Emily were just sharing about that outreach that was just done, being motivated by the love of God. The core of the Christmas story really is about the love of God and his gift to us. You know, at Christmas season, uh, we do something, all of us to some degree, that kind of speaks in some small way to what God did for us in a very big way. And that is, in the Christmas season, we go out and we buy gifts. Probably everybody in this room buys a gift of some kind or more than one. And when we buy those gifts, what we really want to do with those gifts is to say to the people that we give them to, I love you. We're not just buying them toys for the sake of buying them toys. We're at, those represent something. And when we give them on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or whenever you do that in the tradition in your family, you're basically saying, I love you. And this is an expression of that. Well, that's a very small representation, really, of what God did for us in a very big way, right? By giving us his son. He basically gave us Jesus in order to say to us, I love you. Now, there was something more that Jesus had to do beyond be born. Um, And uh, that was represented this morning in the little video we saw at the beginning, which at the end was to die on a cross for us, which is what we celebrate at Easter time, rise again, and in that resurrection, bring restoration to all those that put their hope and trust in him. You know, during the Christmas season, we have the nativity scenes. We have a little nativity scene set up at our house. And it shows, you know, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the magi and the animals all gathered around. But Jesus is always at the center of that little nativity. Every nativity display you see, whether it's a big one outside of a church or whether it's in someone's home, Jesus, the babe, is always at the center of that nativity scene. Because his image is the one that we want to focus upon above all others. The other characters all had a part to play, as we've seen over the last three weeks. But it's Jesus that's at the center of the story. 
So, what I want to say to you this morning is when you look at that nativity scene, basically what you're seeing is a tableau of God's love in two parts. And I want to look at that this morning from the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2. And I want to start by reading verses 1 to 5, which say these things. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, Roman emperor, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Judea at that time was under Roman control. It was part of the Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting his child. So the first thing I want you to see is the location of Jesus' birth The stable in Bethlehem is significant. It reveals something to us of who he is and why he came. Can you imagine for a moment the sense of anticipation in that stable on that night? Here are Mary and Joseph. They're betrothed but not yet married. And Mary, as we discovered earlier, is a virgin and she's now pregnant and furthermore both Mary and Joseph know at this point that the child in her womb is the creation of the Holy Spirit of God this infant that's about to be born would be the most unique child in all of human history he would be the God man the one who is both God and man at the same time and fully. And his mission, as declared by the angel to Joseph and to the shepherds, would be to be Savior. And the place of his birth tells us about the person of Jesus. And I want you to see some things about the place. There's a significance to the place. First, it's a prophetic place. Bethlehem, which in Hebrew is Beth. Lehem, house of bread, was little more than kind of a suburb of the larger and more significant royal city just a few miles down the road of Jerusalem. It was so small, according to this story, that it lacked the inns to accommodate all the visitors. Because you know part of the story is there's no room in the inn, right? Although we sing at Christmas time, we sing these words, and I've sung these many times already during this season at home, usually when I'm on my own, walking around the house, listening to Christmas music. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in, the dark, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, we sing that now about Bethlehem and where Jesus was born, but that was hardly the kind of place that anybody expected a king to be born. For the Jews, royalty and kingship were associated with Jerusalem, not with Bethlehem. Jerusalem was the capital. It was the seat 
of Hebrew kings. Yet this small town of Bethlehem was a prophetic place. You know, the prophet Micah, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. We hear a lot more about Isaiah. You know, he was one of what the biblical scholars call the major prophets. And Micah's supposedly one of the minor prophets. They're really all major prophets because they were all the voice piece of God. But Micah was around the same time as Isaiah, and he, uh, <clears throat> he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and he brought a message of judgment and of deliverance as a prophet. And he declared the reality of God's Davidic kingdom. This is what Micah did. And he said that it would appear to come to an end and would reach yet greater heights with the coming of a messianic deliverer. And in connection with the Messiah to come, Micah said this, but you, Bethlehem, Elphrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. That's Micah 5 and verse 2. So Micah was declaring the coming of the messianic king, Jesus, to be born in this place, Bethlehem. It was a prophetic place. In fact, the chief priests and the teachers of the law quoted Micah's prophecy, which was at this point some 700 years old, to King Herod when he asked them where was the Christ to be born. And Bethlehem is also significant as the family home of King David and the place of his anointing as king. So hence the angel refers to the town of David when he announces Jesus' birth. And Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the son of David. You get the connections here? There is then both this direct and indirect prophetic correlation between the Messiah that came and the place of his coming or his birth, namely Bethlehem. This was a prophetic place where Jesus was born, not just any old place. And it spoke to his messianic identity as a deliverer, as a savior. But it wasn't just a prophetic place, it was a poor place. Not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, which is pretty small and insignificant compared to Jerusalem, but as you know, he was born in a stable. And we're not talking here, Jesus' birth, it was not the Waldorf Astoria where Jesus was born. It wasn't the Ritz. He wasn't even born in Motel 6 where they always leave the light on, right? He was born in a stable. A dingy and dirty place where animals were kept. And we do tend, when we have those little nativity scenes, to sanitize that and make it look very cute and lovely and adorable and inviting. And, but really, it was a stinky, smelly place where animals were kept. It was an unsanitary place where the Son of God was born. 
Jesus was literally born among the muck and the mire. Literally. In a stable, in a poor place, among animals, where animals lived and not people. And I want to say this to you this morning, whereas Bethlehem speaks to his messianic identity, being born in a stable speaks to the fact that Jesus came to those that were poor and marginalized. You know, in Mary's Magnificat, the song that she sings, it's written and declared for us in Scripture, of Magnificat means glories, the glory to God about the birth of Jesus. In Mary's Magnificat, she says this, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. I was thinking about this when you were sharing that testimony, and Emily was this morning, about the outreach it was just done. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich, but sent the rich away empty. When Jesus began his public ministry, Roughly 30 years later, he would declare emphatically that he had come especially to the poor. It's recorded in Luke 4. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Where Jesus was born was a poor place, and it spoke to his identity and heart for the poor. But it was also a powerful place. The stable in Bethlehem was going to witness something the world had never witnessed before in that way. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. His birth was not just a prophetic fulfillment. And it was not just a birth that identified with those that were poor. It was the manifestation of the power of the living God among his people. Remember, the angel told Mary she would give birth to a child, and he said they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the one through whom God made the universe, the scripture tells us. That little baby that was born in that manger, in in that stable in Bethlehem, is the one through whom, the Christ through whom God created the entire universe. And Hebrews 1.3 says he sustains that universe by the word of his power. He wasn't just another baby being born. He was the one by whom God would make known the coming of heaven to earth, the inbreaking of his kingdom. He would build a bridge. And not only build a bridge, he would be the bridge between God and man. John put it this way, the word became flesh. We sang about this this morning in one of the carols we sang. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I want to say this to you this morning. The stable in Bethlehem, it was a prophetic place. It was a poor place. 
It was a powerful place, but that place teaches us something about the love of God. And it teaches us this, that God's love revealed in Jesus is first eternal. It's from the one who came from eternity past, who loves us with an everlasting love. God loves you today with an everlasting love. He broke into space and time in order for you to know that everlasting love. Secondly, the love of Christ revealed to us in Jesus. The love of God revealed to us in Jesus is humble. Jesus laid aside all his heavenly power and prerogative, his robes, his rights, everything. And he clothed himself in humility. First illustrated in the very place where he was born, but then illustrated throughout his life. The way he lived, the way he ministered, the way he loved. And the third thing that's revealed to us about the love of God in Jesus at his birth is the truth that that love is unbeatable. It's unbeatable. God's love for us is so great that nothing could stop him reaching us. And you know from the earlier stories we've covered uh, over the last several weeks, there were attempts to stop Jesus' birth. And then after his birth, to eliminate him. Herod sought to do that, right? The forces of darkness could not stop the reality of the unbeatable love of God reaching us. We're here today because God's love is unbeatable. And people have tried throughout history to rub out the reality of the presence of God's love and they have failed every single time. It doesn't matter how much force and power and violence they brought against Jesus and his church. Jesus said later in his earthly ministry, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The love of God is unbeatable. We need to encourage our hearts with that this morning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 that love never fails. It always accomplishes its purpose. So that's the first of the two-part tableau I want to talk about. The second is Luke chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 where we read this. While they were there, the time came from the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It's not only the stable in Bethlehem that speaks of the love of God to us. It's the infant in that manger. Though born to ordinary parents and he was born in an ordinary way, Jesus, he was the most extraordinary person ever to be born. We said earlier, conceived in an extraordinary way through the Holy Spirit. A supernatural conception. This was the Christ child. The Messiah child. The infant in the manger placed there in this feeding trough with these animals, but none less, none other than the son of the living God. John records the reality of that, and he says this. This is how God's love 
God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. Now look at it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God's love always takes the initiative. We would not be here now if it were not for the initiation of God's love. Made known to us in his son whom he sent who is at the center of this Christmas season. And you know that the story doesn't end there. I already said that early on uh, in the message today that the, the, the pinnacle purpose for his coming was actually to die on a cross. An atoning death for the sins of the world. But it begins here at this Christmas time. We know that that's true because John 3.16 tells us, you know, for God so loved the world. There's that word again, loved. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have, possess, no everlasting life. The infant in the manger was not only the son of God, as awesome and incomprehensible as that is to us, and it must have been in many ways to those who witnessed it, he was the sacrifice of God. It was not enough for God to just send his son to show us that he loved us and what perfect humanity looks like. If you want to know what perfect humanity looks like, read the Gospels in the Bible. Read about the life of Jesus. He is the perfect representation of humanity as God intended for it to be. But he came to be the sacrifice of God. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. An atoning sacrifice. Something needed to be done about our sin. Something that we couldn't do ourselves. Something that God, only God could do in Christ. And that was to atone for that sin. And Jesus would go on to do that for each one of us. Jesus' death covers not only our sin, but it brings the reality and the possibility of restoration. Restoration. Being restored to relationship with our creator God through the redemption of his son. The infant in the manger was the son of God. He was the sacrifice of God. It says in Revelation 13, 8, this of Jesus, that he is the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. God didn't suddenly think this up after Jesus came. Jesus was already a lamb slain from the creation of the world. How mind-blowing is that? That the one that came at Christmas time was already in eternity past in the counsels of God, already a lamb slain on our behalf before the creation of the world. This is the one that broke in. This is the one that we worship at Christmas time. And not just at Christmas time, but every day. And lastly, he came to be the savior of man. 
The angel told Mary that she'd conceived of the Holy Spirit. She would give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Inextricably linked to his identity was this idea of Jesus' savior, rescuer. It says in Luke 2.11, the angel appears to the shepherds and they announce this, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. He was not only the son of God, he was not only the sacrifice of God, he was and is the savior of man. That's who Jesus is. You know, Jesus' name, and I, I talked about this some weeks ago, it means Jehovah, Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. He came to save his people, Israel. But glory to God that his salvation and his saving work goes beyond just Israel. And that's again while we're here this morning. Because probably most of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, are Gentiles and not Jews. We were not originally a part of the covenant people of God, Israel. But now we have been grafted in, the scripture says. We are part of the covenant people of God. And Jesus came to save us. And he came to save you. And if you have not put your trust in him, you can do that today. What better time to come into relationship with the Jesus that we celebrate in this season in a very particular way than today. To open your heart to him and say, I want to know you. I want your salvation. John said, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. You won't find a Savior anywhere else, in anything else. No government will save you. No philosophy will save you. No teacher will save you. There's only one person that can bring the reality of that salvation, that complete rescuing. And that restoration of relationship with God. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I love Tom Wright calls him. uh, uh, Says that his plan was to rescue. To bring rescue and renewal. Rescue and renewal. Think about that. He's rescued us. And now he renews us. Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I want to end with this. This second part of this tableau here in Luke 2, 6 and 7, it tells us some other stuff about the love of God. And it tells us this. God's love revealed in Jesus is first personal. God initiates a personal relationship in love with each one of us. It's the opposite of religion. It's about a personal relationship, not rules and rituals. The love of God is intensely personal. He sets his affection upon each one of us individually, not just as an amorphous group. He loves us as a people. He came to purchase for himself a people, but he loves us each individually as those that make up the people of God. Next, that love revealed to us in Christ is unconditional. 
God's love is not conditioned by anything you and I do or have done or will do. Get a hold of that this morning. The love of God is unconditional. What did John say? It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son. God's love is always unconditional. Let me say this to you this morning. God will never love you more or less than he does right now. He won't. Now, he wants you to know him, to be obedient to him, to follow him, to grow in him, to experience the reality of his favor on your life, to become a full-fledged reproductive disciple of Jesus Christ. He wants all that, but he is never going to love you more than he does right now. His love is constant and it's unconditional. 1 John 4 8 simply says God is love. And that word love there is a love that's unconditional. That is so cool about God. He doesn't love the way that we naturally love. He loves unconditionally. And lastly, I want to say this, that What's revealed about the love of God in Jesus at this time of the year is it's not just personal and unconditional. It's joyful. It's joyful. God saves us from alienation from him, from separation from him. The cross of Christ on which ultimately that baby once grew to be a man, died in our place, and then three days later rose from the dead means that the love of God brings to each one of us when we embrace him, great joy. That's why the angel declared when they came, good news of what? Great joy to all the people. His love is joyful. And I know we go through hard times and sometimes it's hard to... You know, to put a smile on our face, but the reality is this joy is not just about superficial happiness. Our happiness can go up and down and change with circumstances, or at least mine does. You know, one moment I'm happy if I'm getting what I want, and then I'm not, and then I'm not happy. And But this joy is a deep-rooted reality in our life, secured by the love of Christ, that will take us through seasons when things are tough, When we can't put a smile on our face, but we still have joy in our heart. Because he is carrying us through with that unbeatable, unconditional, never-changing love. So I end this morning with this. The story of the stable in Bethlehem and the infant in the manger is the story of God's redeeming love. Never lose sight of that. And it's for each and every single one of us. It's for each and every single person on this planet, irrespective of their culture, their geography, their language, their ethnicity. It's for everyone. This is the story of coming of Jesus. This is the story. It's about him and knowing him. And my prayer for you, today and for me in this Christmas season is best described by the Apostle Paul in uh, a prayer he wrote in Ephesians 3. And I just want to end by reading this to you. This is what it says. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. It's my prayer for you and for me this morning. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long, and high, and deep 
is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Knowing that love is the way that we get filled to the fullness of the measure of God. The coming of Jesus is a story of love. A love that reached out to each of us, that rescued us, that has renewed us. A love that each of us can know personally by simply putting our hope and trust in him. And my prayer is that you will do that. Not just this season, but every season of your life.